I'm pretty sure those those actors are probably dead by now. Yeah. <laughs> so, I hope not. Terrible. <laughs> 60s by now. Right. Oh my right. god. Yeah, that that young guy is probably all old. Yeah. 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 Oh, um, we can tell you stories about the video store. Yeah, it was fun. Yeah, it was fun. I remember seeing video stores like that when you would have the legitimate movies up front, and then there'd be like a curtain or something. And you go back into the back room where the adult section would be in the back room. Mm-hmm. Was it was it set up like that? No, not a curtain, but it was like um, it was like you know those like fiberglass type of wall setting, and it was and so. But there was a section where you could like you couldn't really see it from the outside. You had to walk into the video store, and then to go around the corner, and there were all the videos, were all all the adult videos. Our owner of the video store, his name was Rusty. He was a nice, nice, nice guy, and um, he just he knew they were going to be the like the top sellers. Uh-huh. And so, um, <laughs> I loved him so much, Rusty. Yeah, oh. yeah he was. Really, he's no longer with us, but he was really, really cool guy. Yeah, he unfortunately died of AIDS like back when. You know. Oh, yeah. He died, he died during the height of the AIDS thing, and mm-hmm. he left behind a little, a little son too. Yeah. Sad. So, sad. So sad. <laughs> it's the only video store in all of Santa Monica at that time. Yeah, we were we were such a close tight knit family. He was he asked me one time asked me to he opened up a new this is pre blockbuster days of course before blockbuster uh-huh. just swallowed up every video store but um uh-huh. you know we're talking videotapes here not <laughs> I don't even think the laser discs were beta out. and VHS beta and VHS <laughs> oh my god Betamax <laughs> but he but Rusty opened another video store down in Venice Abbott Kinney Venice which is now <clears throat> hugely popular but back then it was just brand new and um, he's like Sasha I need you to go out there and stand on the corner in a bikini <laughs> and I need you to to wave people into this video store <laughs> and I said anything for you Rusty anything for you <laughs> <laughs> Didn't you guys wear like um, bathing suits or something like that? Bikinis, yeah. Bikinis, yeah. Oh my Bikinis are wow. He was just a great guy, really funny. You couldn't say no to him. You just what were the friends. names of these places? You know, Sasha, one Main Street friends, Video was called. You no, know, one of his friends asked me out on a date. I didn't know that. <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah, one of his friends came in and um, I don't know, he started looking at me, talking to me before I knew it. He asked me out on a date and I said, I'm sorry, I can't do that. Oh my god. What were you like 18 or something then? No, I was in my 20s. Oh, you were in your 20s. God, we were so young. No, y'all were just innocent, huh? Working in this den of iniquity. <laughs> we really were. <laughs> it was so fun, though. I could tell you stories, you guys. Yeah, really, really. Um, that was the 80s for you. That was the 80s. That was the 80s. That was, but, but the best thing about working in that video store was it really was a great introduction to movies. Like, Michael's such a film lover. Mm-hmm. You know, he would just have movies on great movies like um you know body heat the thing metropolis we'd we'd put them on that remember you love metropolis michael you had metropolis. that on all the time um it was the giorgio Moroder version with the rock oh, music yeah, yeah mm-hmm. i love that one even though i love benatar and queen yeah but i remember used to put on the exorcist and i remember when we put on the exorcist that one scene when she goes, stick your cock up. <laughs> and people in, the, people in the video store would turn around and go, what? Because <laughs> we would play that all the time. But we I couldn't help it. ourselves. We love that movie. 
my <laughs> gosh. But it was it this was should be I should probably illegal, right? It's probably illegal to have something like that playing so that it could be heard in a public place that where anybody could walk in, right? Not I, expecting I, to I hear think that. today it would be, but you're talking mm-hmm. about a period of time where people didn't care about a lot of that stuff back in those days. It was the eighties. The boogie night yeah. day, right? Yeah. It was, and you know, now like there's so many family movies and animated movies, like it's taken up so much of the um movie industry. But back then family movies were just a teeny tiny little corner of a shelf and everything else was for adults, you know? Mm-hmm. Adult movies. Yeah. Imagine well, that. Interestingly <laughs> enough, I one of the little factoids I ran across for nineteen eighty five was that in nineteen eighty five the adult video releases climbed to 1,600 titles, and in 1983, there were only 400 titles. So it quadrupled in a period of two years. God. The number of uh, X, X-rated videos quadrupled from 83 to 85 to 1,600 titles. So it was but, like, just exploding, you know? Wow. Yeah, but back in those days, the um, adult industry, a lot of the films told, a lot of them told stories with sex involved, but... Mm. As the years had gone on, they got more and more involved with the sex and less on the story. But if you yeah. go back to the late 70s and to the early part of the 80s, a lot of those adult films have really actually interesting stories involved with sex with S, with sex in them. It was but imagine- that's what I heard about like um, when we're talking about uh, Deep Throat and Behind the Green Door. Mm-hmm. People would go see those movies in, in legitimate theaters. I mean, cut, really... Just it was like a date night. You take your your girlfriend to go see a movie like that, and there'd be a, it'd be a, there would be a plot, and then there'd be like really hardcore sex in the middle of it, right? True, and but now those films are like they're pretty tame by today's standards. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It, 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 it was so fun to work there because it was so much fun to have people come in and ask you what movie to rent. And like nowadays, people will just go on Facebook and say, "I need a I need to watch a romantic comedy," you know. And what do you suggest? And people will put in suggestions. But but if you worked in the video store, it was like being a librarian. They would come in and say, you know, what what what's a good movie? You know, what's a good thriller? And you'd have these conversations, and you'd get to turn people on to movies you love that they may maybe never heard of. Um, it just was so cool. I can't tell you how great it was. You know, but the poor guys are renting porn. It's like imagine how easily accessible porn is now on the internet imagine just to get you had to have a credit because michael was in charge of membership remember michael how hard it was you had to have a credit card and an id you know and you'd have to put all that stuff down when you went to rent a porn to make sure that you returned it so if you didn't return it you would get charged for it right right we used to have the married men would come in with their kids and rent the family films and then they would come later on and rent the adult films. It, right. it, it was kind of like this this thing where, oh my God, right. he was just in here renting movies with his kids, and then he came in like an hour or so later to rent his adult films. It had to be a cool thing because, I mean, that's where Tarantino was, got started, right? I mean, that's where yeah. he, his interest in movies got started too, working at a video store. Yeah, I think he worked in, in Hollywood at the um, <clears throat> Laser or something. I can't remember what it was called, but um, some one of our readers, I'm sure, our listeners will know for sure what Tarantino video store he worked at in Hollywood. But yeah, it was kind of like that. We weren't, you know, we were young and and uh, really into movies, most of us. Right. And I mean, it was just, it was a lot of fun. It really was. And it's the kind of community that you don't really have anymore. Everybody's so like in their own homes, you know. Remember, um, what's his name? He used to come into the store all the time. Um, so that's his, Bill his name Paxton. is um, Bill Paxton. Paxton. Bill Paxton, yeah. He used to come in all the time. Bill Paxton did. Bill Paxton used to come in yeah. all the time. He was so wow. nice. So anyway, that was our video store days, but we can we can we can now <clears throat> segue into nineteen eighty-five. Um, hello and welcome to Oscar Podcast. We're 
joined once again by my old friend Michael Gray and also Craig Kennedy from livinginsinema.com, Ryan Adams and me Sasha Stone from awardsdaily.com. And we're we're starting with uh, we're we're back into the 80s now with 19 that glorious year 1985. Which actually, ironically, I think Michael, that's sim- that's almost the time we were in the video store. Was was that year? Um, yeah, Close 80, to it. I think it was like eighty between eighty five and eighty six, something like yeah, that. Yeah, so we're right in that zone. Right. Um, Michael was, of course, I need to remind you, uh, the first person who ever got me interested in any way in the Oscars, and he knows a lot about them and has is actually genuinely interested in them. Um, one so. other thing, another uh, uh, related to the to the uh, porn title factoid that I found, I also found that households in 1985 are renting an average of four videos per month, one a week, and they were and so it was really eating into the into the box office because people were waiting for movies to come out on video or seeing movies on video that they wouldn't even have seen in the movies at all. And but you know that's just pretty substantial to be renting you know four movies a, a month. Yeah. Doesn't sound a lot to us because we see more movies a, like a week, but you know. So the, it's funny too to think how the studios really sweated that whole home video thing when it turned out for a good twenty years home video kept the movie business afloat. Right. And now that that sort of dried up with DVD sales, they're they're sort of standing there with their their dorks in their hands, wondering what to do and where to make money. Absolutely. Yeah. Not only did it keep the studios afloat just as an added source of revenue, but it was, a, it was a great way for people to catch up with independent films and foreign films that would never come to their hometown local theaters. You could see things on, D- on VHS and DVD back then, and so it really helped the independent film industry get a, get a foothold, I think, because people could finally have a chance to watch those movies. Yeah. Um, 1985 was an infamous Oscar year because it was the year that Steven Spielberg... Um, got 11 nominations for The Color Purple, uh, missing only Best Director, something that in 1985 seemed to matter and in 2012 did not. However, um, Out of Africa beat The Color Purple pretty easily. Out of Africa made more money than The Color Purple, even though they were both in the top... They they rounded out the year in the top 10 of the year's highest box office films. I mean, um, back then, of course, was still the time when Academy Award nominated movies were in the top of the box office. You know, that's how it was back then because they were really popular movies that everybody was talking about. Out of Africa kind of bled into the social consciousness. People were dressing like Meryl Streep. Um, They were, you know, it inspired clothing catalogs and furniture and, you know, all sorts of things. Plus, people were really moved by the story. It was a sweeping epic. And I think that Sidney Pollack was so kind of in with the Hollywood. Um, in crowd and Spielberg wasn't that it made it a really easy choice for them to pick that movie and the color purple as we'll talk about was kind of um, its reputation stained by critics and activists and Spielberg never really caught a break for for that movie that he made that no other director had tried before and no other director has tried since a movie with an all-black cast right yeah, with a female lesbian uh, lead. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. Uh, Sidney Pollack probably benefited from the fact that we've talked about before, where if a movie is really popular the year before or two years before, but um, so a lot of people vote for it and then it loses, they're, they're determined to vote for him again the next time around. And mm. so Sidney Pollack had only two years earlier come, had Tootsie in right. contention. I'm sure a lot of people thought that was probably the best movie of the year and had voted for it and were disappointed that he lost. And so this was another chance to, to reward him. And he was so funny in Tootsie, you know? Mm-hmm. That, that's right, what I mean, like, yeah. so likable. A, a celebrity like on actor? his own right. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Wasn't yeah. he like an actor prior to becoming like a film like a film director back in like the uh, I guess fifties and sixties? He was an actor first, then he became a director. I don't know. I didn't know that. I know that he always he always acted. He was even he was even in uh, Eyes Wide Shut, right? Yeah, and he's in Husbands yeah. and Wives. Yeah. I, I just kind of remember him as being an. I think he was an actor starting off as an actor first, like in the fifties um, and sixties. Mm-hmm. Not as like a big. Just I think he was more like. Um, um, small parts and stuff like that. Right. More TV he, stuff. Yeah, more TV stuff. And then he found his way into doing the behind the scenes as a director. Uh-huh. Um, that happened a lot back then, I think. I can think of more than one example where um, actors became directors. And not, not just the famous ones, not like just Redford and Costner, but I mean people who like um, like didn't Tony Bill eventually become a director after becoming Yeah, Tony Bill did. Um, yeah. Sidney Lumet, Sidney Lumet even was an actor when he was a teenager and in his twenties he was a stage actor. So a lot of directors had their beginning on, on you know yeah. in front of the camera. Right. It was the year. Almost Erskine too. Oh, sorry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the best actress race was. Remember we talked last week about how you build your Oscar story, you build your Oscar narrative, especially back then. Um, so right now we're in the middle of Cher's Oscar story. Um, she she made. Silkwood, she was nominated for that. This year, she had done Mask, and she um, is she nominated for Mask in this? No, no, no she wasn't. And she was famously Surprised. snubbed, even though she won the award in Cannes. So that helped build up her cred for winning big later when she wins for Moonstruck. But this year, the Best Actress race was. Um, one actress who was already overdue for a lead win, and that was Jessica Lang. Everybody just kind of waited around for her to win her lead Oscar, which she finally mm-hmm. does later. Um, Whoopi Goldberg should have won for The Color Purple and didn't, and it went to Geraldine Page to The Trip to Vanderbilt, which is hard to complain about since, A, I've never seen the movie, but B, she's an older actress, so I don't see how you can complain. I do, however, think Whoopi Goldberg should have won for that. Um, I and know C, I think Geraldine Page had been nominated seven times previously, so yeah. she was prepared to be um, to set a record for losing eight times out. And, wow. and, she, and she was long overdue anyway. Yeah. I mean, right. she, her acting, her Oscar nomination started way back in the 60s. Right. I think with, with Summer and Smoke, I think. Or Actually, one. she was nominated for Hondo in 1953. Yeah, Hondo in the 50s. So she was like long overdue. Wow. It was like her fourth nomination in the Best Actress category. And then she'd been nominated four for supporting and four for Best Actress. So wow. she basically won, I think, because she because I think she's considered one of the greatest actresses of her time, and I think she was just overdue. They loved her, and they gave it to her. Yeah. Yeah. Career award, right? Yeah, definitely. That was for her body of work, not for this film. Even though it was a good film, I did like the film, but she did not win for this film. It was, no. it was overall her body of work. But Sasha, you're so right about Whoopi Goldberg. I mean, to, to think that that was a debut performance, that she'd never acted in a movie before, and that she gave that kind of performance is incredible, really. And, and Oprah Winfrey, Winfrey, too, was that was her first movie ever. Mm-hmm. And that they were both nominated, and Spielberg didn't get any credit for directing them to those nominations is just absurd, really. Oh, I promise you. Until you do right by me, everything you think about is going to cry. You do it, Miss C. Trade places with what I've been through. Come on, Missy. Let's go to the car. He ain't worth it. He ain't worth it. Who you think you is? You can't cuss nobody. Look at you. You're black, you're poor, you're ugly, you're a woman, you're nothing at all. 
Until you do right by me, everything you even think about gonna fail. It's been a pleasure meeting all of you. It is, and the fact that there were two black actresses in the supporting actress category, um, mm -hmm. I don't know how many times that's happened in Oscar history. I haven't looked it up, but that's pretty amazing that Margaret Avery and Oprah Winfrey and Whoopi Goldberg were all nominated that year. Mm -hmm. um, that was the first time three black actors were nominated, I believe, since um, 1972, when it right. was S Sounder and Lady Sing the Blues with mm -hmm. Diana Ross. That was the last time that happened with three, yeah. three so African-American actors. It's, it's pretty horrible to think of how Hollywood treated him after that, you know, and... And there wasn't really another film in the Oscar race with an all-black cast until Precious came along, Lee Daniels' yeah. Precious. Wow, yeah. That's how long it took between Color Purple. Nobody else made those kind of movies because everybody, nobody who would want to after the way they treated Spielberg for that. Another thing about the shafting that Spielberg has gotten from the Academy, with the exception, of course, of Schindler's List, never really became clear to me until I started looking back at this year. I mean, I know you talked about it last year in, in the context of Lincoln, but, you know, he, you could argue that E.T. was a better film than the film that won that year. I'm, I'm not surprised that it lost, but still, in retrospect, that's the movie that has gotten better with age. And it was snubbed. Then The Color Purple was snubbed. Um, I believe, um, what was the World War II one that he did with the kid, with Christian Bale? Empire of the Sun. Empire of the Sun was snubbed. Mm. Um, and that just makes, I mean, everybody talks about Saving Private Ryan losing. Um, and that's the that one seems to stand out the most, but that's another one. And it's just, how, what does this guy have to do to get the respect of his peers? It's I don't incredible. think he ever will. I mean, I think Schindler's List was kind of unequivocal. They had to they, give it. They to had him. to give it to him then. There was no way they could get out of that. But right. um, but the color purple. What's astonishing about its loss was it went eleven to zero. That it won not a single Oscar. That's right. really what blows my mind about it. You'd think that they would pay respect to it in some category with a. The only other on movie that that's happened to or that happened to in recent memory uh, uh, was the the Turning Point, which in no way compares to the to the quality of the Color Purple. And another thing about the Color Purple being nominated for a, in eleven different categories, that it happened in the fifty-eight years of the Academy Awards. 32 other movies had made had earned 11 nominations or more, and um, the director had always been nominated, except for one right. time. Right. You know, so that's how rare that it was that the director would not be nominated within a film that had so many nominations behind it. Right, and, and everybody was um, thinking that was going to happen with Lincoln again and repeat exactly the same thing. Mm -hmm. Lincoln ended I'm, up winning so, too. But. I was surprised to find out that to read that how much people were really outraged and shocked and, and how much of, uh, it was written about back in the headlines in the newspapers were pretty scathing, you know? Yeah. Um, I think about they, the snub uh, or about the movie? About the snub. Mm -hmm. um, the, yeah. um, the Los Angeles Herald said, uh, um, Africa, purple, purp, af, um, color purple 11, Spielberg 0. Um, the, uh, let's see, the Herald Examiner said, uh, this... The headline said, uh, Spielberg snubbed by jealous colleagues. I mean, kids right. came right out and said that in the headline. Spielberg snubbed by jealous colleagues. So yeah. that, was a, that, was the, that was the narrative that, that, was, that was spread. I mean, there was even a move to even have some sort of investigation of the director's branch to see if there had been some sort of uh, concerted effort to deliberately not nominate him. Right. Because and, that, that's how surprised people were. And then listen to this. This is from Inside Oscar um, with, you know, Mason Wiley and Damian Bona's book. Um, mm -hmm. 
after the nominations were released and he was snubbed, it says, because um, Spielberg wasn't commenting on the, the, uh, the snub, it says, with no Spielberg around for a response, Warner Brothers jumped into action with a trade paper ad that expressed sincere appreciation to the Academy for the 11 nominations and then concluded, at the same time, the company is shocked and dismayed that the movie's primary creative force, Steven Spielberg, was not recognized. Um, Al Jean Hartens reported that a number of people made the assumptions that Spielberg had masterminded the statement. Um, although Warner's denied the accusation, columnist Martin Grove warned, it would be the best for all concerned that the balloting not take place under a cloud, and recommended that the Academy appoint a blue ribbon panel to investigate any organized effort to dissuade voters from nominating Spielberg. That's what you're talking about, right? Mm -hmm. Academy President Robert Wise said, forget it, maintaining that the members of the director's branch voted their artistic and creative feelings. One member, Henry Jaglum, vented his feelings, telling the, the Los Angeles Times, the nominations for Babenko and Kurosawa are great. The whole thing is assigned. Um, the director's branch is growing up. Of the non-nominee, Jaglum said, he took this wonderful material and turned it into a zippity-doo-dah song of the South. The Los Angeles Herald Examiner's Greg Kilday shot back, out of Africa isn't a model of documentary realism either a fact purists seem willing to overlook. The one unperturbed voice was John Huston's, who told Army Archer that Spielberg has had so much success he can afford to miss a beat. Houston could afford to be so sanguine. With Spielberg out of the running, he now held the lead for the best director race. Absolutely. That's a little bit snide, I think, for John yeah. Houston to have said that. I mean, you know, well, it's that's telling, a little, bit, a little bit flippant almost to say that, you know, so what is what He can afford to, to, not, to do without a nomination. He's so successful. That's not right. Well, that's I think that's sort of telling. I mean, to, mm -hmm. to give Ben Affleck the benefit of the doubt, um, you could also make that argument that people think of Ben Affleck as being too blessed to also deserve, mm -hmm. like he's he's got these great looks and you know this happy family. What does he need an Oscar nomination for? It's always with Spielberg. It's, there's always I think that jealousy of he makes so much money with his movies. What does he also need the Oscars for? You That's know another thing, thing that I too about think. Affleck is that people underestimated Affleck, and so it became this almost an underdog story to have his movie be nominated. Whereas with Spielberg, people have always taken him for granted. They just assume that he wakes up in the morning and he can just dash off you know, a near masterpiece. And so yeah. they're more, they're more, they're more critical of them. And I think they, they're, they take him for granted. And at this point in his career, they weren't ready to embrace him as a serious filmmaker yet. He was still the purveyor of kitty picks and, and that kind of stuff. So. But you know, Craig, I think as you hit on it when you said the word masterpiece, because I think that people can be jealous of someone, people can forgive someone who makes a lot of money and they're a hack. And they can be okay with somebody who's who's uh, who makes masterpieces, but does but his movies don't make a lot of money. But if your movies make a lot of money and you also make masterpieces, that's when the jealousy kicks in, and that's right. where they're not jealous of Affleck because I don't think anyone can say that uh, Ben Affleck directs masterpieces. Right. You know. Right. So I think that I think that the fact that Spielberg it was it was obvious to people that he was doing things with movies that had never. That people had never seen before. Right. And he was able to do things with Jaws, and he was he was absolutely a superb um, director. That really irritated people. The fact that he was able to do those, that kind of quality and makes money at the same time. Right, that's really. And with true. Color Purple, I think it gave the impression to people that he was trying to be too big for his britches. You know, he they, they wanted to keep him in the corner where mm. he made these these huge blockbusters. They weren't comfortable with him um, as a purveyor of so-called serious films. 
I will say, looking at the color purple again, it is unlike any other movie that, that from the era. It is absolutely a different tone than I ever would have expected a movie to have been made from that book. It the it's not what it it, it the, it's it's so colorful and so vibrant and alive, much lighter I think than the book was. And That's one of the major criticisms against it, mm -hmm. and it's probably not entirely unfair. Uh -huh. um, I mean, it, it, it's definitely sunnier in tone than the book, but mm -hmm. that, I think Oliver Stone said it best in response to people who said that Spielberg ruined the book. He said, Spielberg didn't ruin the book. Without Spielberg, the movie never would have been made. And that's true, because Hollywood mm -hmm. never in a million years would have made a movie with an all-black cast with the star uh, uh, black lesbian. It just never would have happened without somebody without the box office cloud that Spielberg And had. if you had so, made it, if you, the movie had been as dark as the book with an all-black cast, that would, have, that would have been a pretty bleak experience for white audiences, I think. I mean, it was, right. pretty, it was bleak enough as it, as it was with, uh, with all of the abuse and, and, and everything that was going on you know, in the movie, in the, in, the, in the context of the film. It was pretty dire, depressing stuff anyway. So yeah, I think they, that you needed that lightness. I think you needed the color. But, well, and even even as as made, it still took criticisms from the other side for its portrayal mm -hmm. of black men. It, mm -hmm. it 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 gave cause for everybody to be pissed off about it. Either either people were mad that um, a white man was making a movie about black people, or they were mad about the portrayal of the black men in the film. You know, mm -hmm. there, he just couldn't win. There was there was no way he could win with that film. As if it wasn't in the book, right? As if all that wasn't in the book. And so, if you leave that out of the movie, then you're in how how is that being faithful to the book? Because it was all something that Alice Walker wrote. Right. Yeah. He was criticized for what he left in and criticized for what he took out. Which is very mm -hmm. similar to Lincoln. The reception of mm -hmm. Lincoln. It was it was too boring and dry, you know, and not sentimental enough. Wells' Color Purple was mm -hmm. too sentimental, you know. And if it had been boring and dry, maybe they would have liked it better. But no, the guy just can't win. It, Another, um, Stanley Donan uh, directed the Academy Award um, broadcast that year, and they had a special tribute, uh, like a montage of um, the all-time favorite Oscar losers, great movies that had lost the Oscar, and Stanley Donan included um, Jaws, Raiders of the Lost Ark, and E.T. In this, in this brief montage, he included three Spielberg films, almost like to rub, rub it in, in the Academy's noses, you know, rub their noses in it. Oh, my God. Well, so the NAACP were protesting and, you know, various other civil rights groups were protesting, you know, I think outside the Oscars. And it really caused a lot of stress, you know, for, I think, for anyone. But all that seemed to amount to in the end was less jobs for black actors. Mm -hmm. That was the sort of the sum total of it. Right. It's almost as if the, the, if you raised any hoopla about it, if you raised any objection to it, then you were, then you were at fault. I mean, I think that Willie Goldberg probably did herself some damage. She said about when, she found, when, when Spielberg was nominated, uh, Whoopi Goldberg made a statement. She said that the Academy is a small bunch of people with small minds who chose to ignore the obvious. And that can't have helped her chances at winning the Oscar. Right, you know? right. Probably, yeah. Um, yeah, well, she's a woman who says what's on her mind. That's Absolutely. why she's on and the view. She's, so she's, at, she's right. She was justified. Yeah, yeah. Michael, what did you think of the color purple? Um, I really, you know, I'm, I was, I'm listening to you guys go back and forth, and you guys made a lot of good points and stuff like that. I personally, I mean, I... I, I'm like I, I either I liked it or I didn't like it. I really didn't think too much about you know the black man. He was abusive um, to his wife, and 
Whoopi Goldberg's character was a lesbian. I really didn't think much about all that. It didn't really phase me one way or the other. I just kind of felt like if that's the way the book had written it out to be, mm-hmm. then I don't see why everyone is in, is, is in such like complaining about it. I don't under, I don't understand the NAA, NAACP why they were so upset about it. I think basically it, it was because a white man directed black actors yeah. in a story about black people. That's, That's the right. only what reason the NAAC pretty much were upset. There I was am. no, because they knew it was a brilliant film, mm-hmm. but they wanted to see a black man. But at that time period, there weren't a lot of great black directors out there that could take that project, that Hollywood would give them money to make a film like that. I know. Exactly. So it had to be a white director. I think Steven Spielberg did a superb job with the film. I thought it was a remarkable piece of telling, storytelling of that time period. I, I remember when the film came out, um, there were black groups talking about how it depicted a negative viewpoint of an African-American male. But there were African-American men who acted like that, who were like that, who were abusive to their wives and to their children. You know, I mm-hmm. guess you have to be black to understand it. You know, right. to understand you know, think- it. It's- go on, I'm sorry. No, you, uh, you go ahead, Michael. You know, and also to be in, in that time period and stuff like that. You know, white people can't um, understand being black because mm-hmm. their experience is different from a black person's experience. Right. Like experience, but you talk to any black person who lived that time period, and they would say it was like that in certain aspects. Yeah, I was also going to say that there are there are certainly a lot, plenty of movies that show white men, white husbands who are despicable also. But though, but there are so many movies about white people that there's a balance between good white characters and bad white characters. But when a movie comes along that is that features exclusively black people and there's so few of them it has it carries a special a burden i think to 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 uh i think portray the, the that culture different i mean the same way we feel about when we see when we used to see uh, movies that had a gay characters and the gay characters were always the the diabolical evil ones you know that would that rubbed me the wrong way because those were the only gay people you ever saw on screen were the were the devils you know and so once that once we began to have more and more gay characters on screen, I was okay with it because there are definitely some evil some evil queens out there, you know. Right. But 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 to show, to show exclusively that that would, that every time that you saw a gay person in a movie, it was going they were going to be duplicitous. That was uh, that wasn't right. Well, early well, Hollywood always had this thing about when they cast black people in films, they used to be either prostitutes, pimps or any gang members, or they were always bad elements of the black community. And I remember I used to upset black people. Every time they go to a movie, why is that the black character is either a pimp or a prostitute or a crime boss? They were never positive characters. And a positive character, black character, did not come into films until, like, um, Sidney Poitier, when he became an actor, he played Mm -hmm. very positive black men. Yeah. You know, so the image that a lot of white audience have always had 
with black people has always been negative. They've always been gang members. They've always been prostitutes. They've always been um, pimps, um, drug dealers, drug pushers. That was the image Hollywood portrayed in the, on the big screen from the 50s into the 60s and, and early 70s and late 70s. And then all of right. a sudden you have this one film that came out that didn't have that. It showed a positive but negative side to an American African-American family. Yeah, and then you also have another Best Picture winner, Witness, where the villain, the primary villain is Danny Glover. He's yeah. the murderer. That You find out he's the murderer in the first 10 minutes of the, 10 or 15 minutes of the movie. He's the big villain. Right. You know? And, right. and, and uh, trying, was, trying was, to kill Harrison <clears throat> Ford. I was just going to say that, remember that movie, I'm Going to Get You, Sucker? Robert Townsend was such a promising up-and-coming black filmmaker, and Spike Lee was such a promising up-and-coming black filmmaker. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of like if, if, if Hollywood and activists like the NAACP, if, if they want it to be only black directors can direct black stories and only white directors can direct white stories, then I don't see how there's ever going to be any crossover. But in order to win Oscars, in order to get into the big big game with the big boys, you have to be able to cross over to white audiences. You have to be able to cross over to white critics. I'm seeing this right now with The Butler. You know, Lee Daniels is still the only black director who has ever gotten a Best Picture and Best Director nomination from the Academy for Precious. And Precious was a movie that depicted black community as very depressed and oppressed in that cliche way Michael is talking about. But yes, they had a good character in there who emerges as the hero. But still, it, it the criticism was the Academy only will accept these types of stories with black characters. And how can you argue with that when you see how they treated the color purple? Mm-hmm. Um, and Spike yep. Lee, who was totally snubbed for Do the Right Thing. I can't right. wait till we get to that year. You know, a film like Precious could not have been made 20 years ago. Even if, oh, if they had a yeah. black director, producer, or not, it would not have been made, you know, at all. It's, and it shows how times have changed since The Color Purple and, like, now. Now you have that movie that's coming out now, that's out now, um, Fruitvale Station, which is, mm-hmm. what, produced and directed by a black guy? Yeah. Mm-hmm. See, mm-hmm. time, it, it took a long time since The Color Purple, and it shouldn't have taken that long, but it, it's, it's a slow progress for African-Americans in Hollywood. They're still trying to um, become equals with white Hollywood. And it's, and it's been a struggle since The Color Purple still. And ironically, it's, it's the criti- ironically, the criticism that Fruitvale Station is now getting is that they portray the lead black character as being too nice. Mm. Give me a break. I know, it's so true. So we were talking about that again last week, and, and this applies to Steven Spielberg with The Color Purple and, and any other black filmmaker, Spike Lee or anybody. It has to pass so many different tests before it can get to just give the fucking movie credit already. Would you, as being a good movie, it's like it has to appeal to white people. It has to appeal to black people. It has to, you know, paint everybody in a good light. It, it has to make the characters believable. It, you know, there's too much of a burden on black filmmakers, I think, um, or anybody telling the story of black um, characters whether it's a white director. Now, Steve McQueen, who has a movie coming out this year called 12 Years a Slave, is a um, really talented black filmmaker um, who's made two movies that were not black stories. Shame and Hunger were movies about white characters. And now Mm -hmm. he's making his first movie about black characters. I love it that he, he feels like he can just do that. And Spike Lee's making Old Boy, which I don't think is about black characters. You know, give black directors the chance to direct movies with white characters, too. 
and mm-hmm. give white directors a chance to direct movies with, like you say, they, Color Purple couldn't have been made by anybody but Steven Spielberg. Nobody could have gotten that movie made. He used well, his just, clout to make that movie. What other black directors were there? In fact, Spike Lee's debut film, She's Gotta Have It, was 1986. So it was the year after The Color Purple. Spike Lee hadn't even come on the scene yet. He, his debut movie was the following year, but She's Gotta Have It. Right, so, right. I mean, who, who was there to direct The Color Purple? Who would they have found to direct it? Either they could have gotten. I mean, the only black directors that there were, but their their careers had ended in the was during the um, the black exploitation period of the seventies, mm-hmm. where you had a lot of black guys directing black urban films for black America, and by but but by the time Color Purple came out, they were not directors anymore. And they, they were, were not the for, level of. They were not the level of prestige to take on a picture of this scope and right, expense right. And, and, and literary clout. But you, know? but you know another movie that The Color Purple reminds me, reminds me of, but is not on, it's on a different level, is the film Sounder. Sounder mm-hmm. was made in 1972, directed by Martin Ritt. Brilliant, brilliant film about a black family struggling in the 1930s. How the father steals a loaf of bread and he goes on a chain gang. And there was no controversy when that movie came out. And if, when you see that film, it is one of the most beautiful films portraying a black family and a positive role model of a black father and his black son. Right. Mm-hmm. And when I, and I, when I think about The Color Purple, I always go back to Sounder because it was, it's the, it was the first film to have a black actor and a black actress nominated as well as a black screenwriter was nominated also. And right. he got a Best Picture nod. Yeah. And Martin Ritt was... Um, snubbed, who should have got a nomination for that movie. Right, right. He snubbed his entire career, except right, for... Right, because he know. directed some great films, but he's been snubbed we as talked a director. About that. We talked about um, HUD and... Um, well, I guess he was nominated for HUD. But then, and then later in later's career, there was Norma Ray and right. Cross, Cross Creek here in, in 1985, I think he directed. But I feel and like he, The Color Purple was a lot more challenging than Sound. Sounder... As good as it was, was a, was a movie that, um, peop, a story that people are comfortable telling, you know, and that and that you know white people can can watch and feel comfortable and not threatened. And I feel like the color purple was threatening, you know. I mean, it had sexual characters, black sexual characters, women, and and, and a lot of critics said that they didn't go far enough and that he whitewashed it or whatever, but. I didn't feel that way. I felt it was very sexual. The flirtation between Seely and um, um, you know that what's her name who got also got a nomination. Um, oh, Margaret Avery. Margaret Avery mm-hmm. um, was was very hot. You know, I mean, it was it was it was breaking boundaries. It was showing female characters in powerful positions. You know, for more than anything, God loves admiration. You saying God is vain? No, no, not vain. Just wanting to share a good thing. I think it pisses God off if you walk by the color purple in a field and don't notice it. Are you saying it just want to be loved like I say in the Bible? Yeah, Celie. Everything want to be loved. Us sing and dance and holler. Just trying to be loved. Look at them trees. Ever notice how trees do everything to get attention that we do? Except walk. (laughs) 
Oh, Miss Celia, it feels like singing. And that was something you never saw before. And I do think, in its own weird way, it upset it. You know, it upset the apple cart a little bit in terms you of know, what we I expect had, from black characters. I had not seen Color Purple for years and years, so I refreshed my memory by watching it again. And and I had never seen it. I'd only seen it on DVD, and so I I, I, I guess maybe the clarity didn't come across to me. But on Blu-ray, in the very first scene when when uh, Celia is giving birth. They're in a really cold cabin, and there's breath coming out of their mouth, and she's giving birth. There's 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 hot steam coming out from between her legs too. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was shocked to see that. I was shocked to see that there was hot breath coming from between her legs. It's amazing that Spielberg would do would be so daring to do that. Right, right. But either way, it didn't work out for the color purple. It it went home with zip. Nothing, not mm. a, not a one win. And I think it's, when, when that finally happened, I think the NAACP were, were mad. Then they started protesting the fact that the Academy didn't acknowledge the movie. So they, well, did it get snubbed at the Globes as well too? At the Globes as well. Oh, that's a good I can't question. remember. I do know that the Directors Guild did make it up to Spielberg. The Directors Guild gave Spielberg the very first award that he'd ever won for anything. Of all right. the great movies he directed through the seventies and through the early eighties, the Directors Guild Award for The Colors Purple was the first award he'd ever won. So he yeah. did win Best Director for uh-huh. The Color Purple. That's why. Uh-huh. Re- yeah, that's why and it was, was so snubbed. shocking. Right. So he's in the position that Ben Affleck was in, but he didn't get the pity party that Ben Affleck got. He didn't get the oh poor Ben. You know he. No, he, he that's got amazing, the- isn't it? The times have changed. So it's almost a completely—it's a complete reversal. That instead of instead of Spielberg being a victim, as he as most as a lot of people saw him, the Academy did not see it that way at all. But on the other hand, Ben Affleck was just—we have to make it up to this guy. Yeah, and well, I, I just can't see Ben Affleck in, in the same category as Steven Spielberg. I just <laughs> really well, there's no comparison between the two. Ben but isn't Affleck it isn't it also a lot more films? To get in that same category. And isn't it ironic that at the end of the day, Affleck would beat Spielberg? <laughs> I, I mean, it was really weird because that year was Spielberg and Ang Lee and Ben Affleck. And all three of them had that weird thing happen to them where, um, like with Ang Lee, he had been snubbed as director before. You know, he also won director for Brokeback Mountain. It didn't win Best Picture. He won DGA for Crouching Tiger. It didn't win Best Picture. And um, and then Ben Affleck was snubbed and Spielberg was snubbed and, and all three of them were competing again last year and of course um, Affleck's movie won but Ang Lee won the the prize but it's just funny to think of the three of them all in the soup again at the at the same exact time but you asked about the Golden Globes the only one who won anything was Whoopi Goldberg who won Best Actress for the drama mm. yeah. So. Golden Globes was still in a period where they were they would do some really great things like that where they would surprise us and, and make up for 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 the um, for the oversight of the Academy but they would also do some really strange things like John Voight won Best Actor that year for Runaway Train at the Golden Globes and who who's ever even watches a Runaway Train anymore it was like well, a B movie Eric Roberts got nominated for it for the Oscars it was a, from a screenplay by. Um, Akira Kurosawa, so it had a pedigree to it. it was, yeah, it that's was, true. It was it was an action movie, but it was the perception of it was that it was elevated above a, a, a B movie. And I also read that uh, the the studio um, Golan Globus um, spent more money pr- um, promoting Runaway Train than had ever been spent on a movie before. They spent half a million dollars promoting it. They took out sc- scads of, of trade ads. They even went around individually to Academy members' homes and screened it for Academy members in their homes who couldn't get out, who were like 
you know, bed bound or couldn't even get out of the house anymore. They spent, you know, $50,000 taking the movie around to show people, you know, one at a time. <laughs> Was so that a really train? <laughs> yeah, Runaway Train. And Runaway Train. You know, I actually like that film. Um, I don't know why. There was something about the film that, that, I, that I did like. Um, I was surprised, though, that John Voight and Eric Roberts got Oscar nomination because I didn't think it was of that caliber Oscar-wise. Yeah. But um, I thought it was a pretty good action film for, for the time. Um, uh, pretty decent. I, I, I think to... it was Canon that produced it, Canon Productions. Mm, Canon, Canon, and Golan, Golan, Golan uh, Globus was a yeah. was a was a was an arm of or a, a branch of, of Canon. You're right about that. And a lot of their movies weren't really that great, you know. Mm. Yeah, yeah, they, they directed they like purveyors of a lot of crap that you used to see on video in the eighties. Yeah, exactly. Um, they did that Electric Boogaloo movie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, they did the original Terminator too, though. Um, let's let's. I, I Okay. Yeah. It was, uh, I just want to. I just want to like gaze upon the weirdness of the best supporting actor category because um, the winner was Donna Michi for Cocoon, but like the the weird nominees were Klaus Maria Brandauer for Out of Africa, William Hickey for Pritzi's Honor, Robert Loggia for Jagged Edge, and Eric Roberts for One Runaway Train. That has to be like the weirdest collection of actors, I think, in a category ever. Uh, and, uh, and best actor as well. I will say that this is one of the rare years for the Academy when it, there really were not a lot of great male roles. You look at the, the, the nominees for best actor and you've got James Garner in Murphy's <laughs> Romance and John Voight in A Runaway Train. I mean, good grief. Harrison Ford in Witness, which I, is pretty, it's probably his best movie, but it's still not an Academy caliber performance, I don't think. You know, I told Sasha that 1985, in my opinion, was perhaps one of the worst Oscar years for movies. <laughs> it's not as bad as 1984. <laughs> <but it's> not, <laughs> um, I know Murphy's Romance. How did that happen? Um, no, what did happen there? I just don't understand people that. People love James Garner, and what's yeah, not to love? James Garner was a favorite from the '60s. You know, he he went from from movies to television, back to movies. They love him. He's a nice guy, and he mm-hmm. he was in this corny romantic comedy with Sally Field, and they liked his character, and they threw him a bone and gave him a nomination and there was one point where people really thought he was going to win because mm. he is from old Hollywood well one thing that's cool about um, William Hurt was also sort of living out his own Oscar story like he had that you know he, he had been um, you know lauded as a, as a really great actor for many many years and had his you know his big his big Oscar moment this year but he's playing a gay character which um, you know we're not we don't see a lot of that at, in the academy we don't see a lot of characters like that win had we, had we ever seen it before had there ever been a, an openly gay character that was that flamboyant ever to be nominated for best actor before i can't ever remember of a of a, a situation where that happened uh, interestingly enough rock hudson died in late 1984 so that was probably on people's minds when they saw Kiss of the Spider Woman. Right, and and if you if you count the the um, lesbian undertones of Color Purple, and you add that to another movie that came out that year, Desert Hearts, which is a full on lesbian film. I mean, they're having mm-hmm. sex in that movie. It is absolutely a foreshadowing of what you know, Blue is the warmest color is, or. You know, I mean, it's a it's a very kind of traditional love story told about lesbians. And the other movie that came out that year was My Beautiful Laundrette. 
Mm. So, I mean, that he certainly could have been nominated. Um, Dane Day-Lewis. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great movie, too. Great performance. I think he won a lot of awards for that performance, too. But He, um, he didn't make it. And, and another one that they overlooked, I think, was Jeff Daniels in The Purple Rose of Cairo. He's great in that. He is great. And I love that movie. I think that the Academy really stumbled by only nominating it for Best Screenplay. It's probably in, in my top five Woody Allen movies of all time. It's right behind... It's right behind Crimes and Misdemeanors and Hannah and Her Sisters, I would yeah, say. Yeah, it's you know, really good. Uh, it's fantastic. I love it so much. And the, the BAFTAs understood how great it was. They, they gave it Best Picture that year. Mm. It won Best Picture and Best Screenplay, and the Mia Farrow was nominated for Best Actress. But the Academy really blew it on. You know, the thing is, it's one of those movies, for maybe like Blue Jasmine, it's not really laugh-out-loud funny. You have to you have to wait about thirty or forty minutes into Purple Rose of Cairo before there's even any kind of wisecrack or funny joke line at all. There's no punchline to that movie. It's a pretty bleak film, mm. taking place in the depression. You know, yeah. Possibly that's why they they were surprised and maybe disappointed. They were going to see a Woody Allen movie expecting to you know laugh it up, and they didn't get to. Yeah, uh, and another some other movies that really broke through that year. Um, uh, desperately seeking Susan. Now we're in 1985. We're in Madonna's rise. Mm. Madonna's about to take over the world. You know, like a virgin. I think came out last year or this year. Um, and desperately seeking Susan, of course, only solidified her her rise. Uh, that you know that makes I think you know was a pretty Im- important movie for the era. And also the Breakfast Club. You know, which is John Hughes. This was the era of John Hughes. It was it was totally ignored, of course, by the Academy. But there were some really good performances in that movie, and it really holds up. I think. It really and it, and my whole generation too. And it started the whole teen films, in a sense. Yeah. And the Academy yeah. is the always 80s. going to they're always going to ignore movies that star teenagers. It doesn't matter how good they are. It's just like uh, Perks of Being a Wallflower, a fantastic film that got completely overlooked by the Academy because I don't even think anybody watched it. Because once they find out that it's the teenagers are the stars, they don't even they lose interest. And that's what happened with the Breakfast Club, and it's happened over and over throughout the years. They just ignore movies that feature teenagers. And am I right that Ron also came out that year? Ron, Akira mm-hmm. Kurosawa? Yeah, because he, 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 the nominees. he took the director's slot that Spielberg was expecting. Oh, that's to get. right. Okay, yeah, yeah. duh. Mm-hmm. Sorry. Sort of Kurosawa's last gasp. He would make, I think, three more films after that, but none of them were really up to the standards of his, uh, of his, of his past history. But Ron... Holds its own among his best films. Do you is think it it's Ron his best? Kind of based on King Lear. Yes, it is. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you think it's his best movie, Ron? No. 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 What's Excellent, his best one? Best. Oh, Seven Samurai or Rashomon or. Oh, yeah, I, I his earlier films one. from the fifties are probably his best. Mm-hmm. Any anything with Toshiro Mifune. <laughs> mm. So many. I mean, you know, you could you could name a dozen masterpieces he made and it'd be hard to choose between them well it should be noted that women have not yet disappeared from films because a lot of the top box office you know adults were still paying tickets to movies this is the video store era that me and michael lived through so people were you know adults had no option to see movies there was really no i mean there was kind of cable tv but not really people were still actually paying tickets so our box office was number one back to the future with 215 
Million, which is a great movie, by the way. And produced by Spielberg. Yeah, it's produced wonderful. Produced by Spielberg. So, and, you know, another thing, that's another uh, slam against him that he's just too successful that year. Sadly, Rocky Four is number two. <laughs> I, Rambo. God, that movie was horrible. <laughs> Rambo is number three. And then you get Out of Africa at number four, Color Purple, The Jewel of the Nile with Kathleen Turner, Cocoon, Witness, um, Police Academy 2, The Goonies, Spies Like Us, A View to a Kill, which I guess is James Bond, Fletch with Chevy Chase, National Lampoon's European Vacation, Mask, Brewster's Million, The Breakfast Club, White Knights, Pale Rider, Clint Eastwood, and mm. Pee-wee's Big Adventure. I mean, so you're seeing a lot of the, what they call the target demo now, the 13 to 18 or 24-year-old boys, men, driving these box offices. You can tell by the movies that are mm-hmm. in there. Yeah, it's encroaching on, and, and it was before the time of the multiplexes, I guess, but they were really, but studios were beginning to glom onto the fact that this is our this is our meal ticket. Yeah. This is our ATM machine. This is These are the people who come to the movies every single weekend. Right, and Rocky Four and Rambo, you know, although Rambo, I have to say, um, it, it kind of succeeded on its own. It didn't really ride off the first one, I don't think, because First Blood was a little more like gritty and artsy. It didn't make a lot of money. It was actually a good movie. It was a really good movie. And Rambo, which is a guilty pleasure of mine, is totally um, different. It's, it's just, you know, absolutely... More, car- more cartoonish in a way. Yeah, cartoonish, vengeant, you know, totally racist. <laughs> and really really neoconservative. It's one of the first yeah. really neoconservative Reaganite movies, I think. And absolutely. Really, you know, we talk about the, the impact of the presidential election or the, the politics the, and the climate, the political climate the country has on films. I think sometimes we forget that it takes um, movies... It takes Hollywood maybe two or three years to catch up to that because of the movies in the pipeline to get them into development, to get the script written, and to get them made. It sometimes takes two or three years into a president's um, administration before you start to see films that reflect that philosophy. And I mm-hmm. think Rambo was definitely one of those, you know, Reaganite movies. Yeah. Um, Sorry. No, no, I was just... <laughs> I'm really preaching today. I just I don't was know why. preoccupied for a moment, but you're absolutely right. Um, I, you know, I was old enough to remember the politics of the time, and but but I really like the kind of diversity we saw this year, not, not necessarily in the box office or in the very white, white Oscar race, except for Color Purple, but in the movies that were being made at the time, some really good movies. Agnes of God, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I remember 1985 more in retrospect than than I remember at the time, but for Brazil, which um, had kind of an interesting story. Terry Gilliam fought tooth and nail with the with the with the studio over the ending of the film, and um, dug in his heels and and really used up a lot of his a lot of his his. Uh, Esteem that may have been had for him. He he rubbed a lot of people the wrong way, but the movie and the movie itself was kind of released into obscurity. But the LA film critics sort of rescued it by by oddly, at the time seemingly giving it giving it their best picture that year, and that's it ended up turning up at a couple of spots in the in the Oscars. And it's a m- movie that's fondly remembered by a lot of people. But I think it, we can thank the LA film critics for sort of rescuing. And, and like you said, more in retrospect, and I think also you, we can thank the DVD market, and we can also thank the director's cuts because Brazil came has there are like three or four different versions of Brazil, and and the longer they are, the better they are. And right. I think that they yeah. released into theaters a really short version that was that was kind of chopped up. In a in a sense, it's similar to Blade Runner. That mm-hmm. it wasn't it wasn't um, 
it wasn't understood and it wasn't it was sort of butchered when it came into theaters so it took it needed reconstruction and a reassessment before people began to appreciate it but talk about a movie that's really prescient about the surveillance state and about torture <laughs> you know i mean it really yeah. was way ahead of its time at predicting what would happen to america in the 20 years hence see i never saw that film but i i my only memory of that film was when it came on out on VHS and everyone who came into the video store wanted that film. They wanted to rent that film. We couldn't keep that film on the shelf when it finally got released on VHS and everybody was coming to rent it. That's my only memory of that film. So, And I used to hear different things about it. Some people say, oh, it's really weird. And some people say, one person told me one time, it's far ahead of his time. Yeah. Um, I, I think it that. was. Yeah. But I have to see that film because I've never actually seen it. It really should have. When Criterion um, brought it out on on, on um DVD and then a Blu-ray in in two or th in two or three of its versions, so you could compare the versions. And then it went out of print. There was such an outcry that oh my God, you can't let this movie go out of print. We we need this out there. You know, it would be it was when it it it, it became copies of it after it became out of print. You could you, you could only buy them for like four hundred dollars or something. People wanted it so badly. I just have to sort of change the subject and say mm -hmm. that um, if Spielberg felt bad about not winning another Oscar for. Um, for uh, Lincoln, at least he's he's got more Oscars for directing than than John Huston, who um, that year had directed Pritzi's Honor, and you know he's only won one Oscar for directing, actually one Oscar total for his whole beautiful career, and Pretty that sad. was for directing Treasure of the Sierra Madre, and he did not win screenplay that year, just director. Um, all the nominations he's had, all the, 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 the vast contribution he's made to Hollywood, he has only won one Oscar. So it's a little bit shocking to me that, uh, you know, no begrudging Sidney Pollack because, and I know, Ryan, you love Out of Africa. And I, I do, but really, I, I really think that I probably like Pritzi's Honor in retrospect even more than I like Out of Africa. And I, I, like the, I love them both. I love yeah. both of them very much. go out of space what do you say uh, we go to dinner tonight dinner what do you mean what do I mean I mean let's go someplace and get something to eat you and me and Irene no just you and me She had to go away. She won't be back. How about it? How about it? Holy cow, Charlie. Just tell me where you want to meet. I just think it's weird that, I mean, why wouldn't they give him i think at the time everybody expected john houston was going to win you know like mm -hmm. they didn't I, I think that Sidney pollock winning was sort of a surprise even though it was an epic even though it had all those nominations even though it was such a huge box office favorite it's just weird that that they would snub john houston there when i watched uh pretty's honor again recently as soon as angelica houston comes on screen i went immediately to imdb and i was going to be so furious because i wanted to see who had the nerve to beat her for best supporting actress that year and i was so relieved to find out that she won i had forgotten that she won but i mean as soon as she comes on screen she owns that movie oh she's great 
It's fantastic. And it's amazing, isn't it, that the John Huston directed his father to an Oscar and he directed his daughter to an Oscar. Oh, it's really. Yes, that's great. It's only happened once, so that's really great. That's it only cool. happened once. Should we talk about Out of Africa a little bit? I think we've been a little unfair to it. It, it did win yeah. 11 Oscars, and it's it's. I'm mad at it because it beat the color purple, but, you know, it, it has merits on its own as a film. I don't like it as much as Ryan did, but... It, it it was a noble a noble effort and a decent enough film. Maybe Ryan wants to talk about it a little I bit. I love it so much that just to, just to hear the music, I can it, it I I destroy, this wrecks me to hear the music to hear that theme song the John Barry theme song it just it just wrecks me emotionally and and um, and Meryl Streep's voiceover uh, the same thing. I think that people I, I just makes me infuriates me to say that it's just another one of her accents because her her performance is so no, nuanced in that movie. I really like her performance in Out of Africa even more than I like Sophie's Choice. Mm. I really sincerely do. Uh, I think that it was an important movie because. Uh, following on the heels of Tootsie, Sidney Pollack was really the only director who seemed to care at all about feminism. Tootsie had a really um, sharp, insightful uh, take on feminism, and Out of Africa certainly does. It was a romanticized feminism, but why not? What's wrong with that? What's wrong with being a feminist and being having some romance in your life at the same time? No, nothing wrong. And, and yeah. how unique to have a film about an actual character progression of a female like mm. that her whole internal world her writing i mean it's just it is completely extinct now right one of the interesting things about it for me and part of the reason why it why it doesn't quite work in the end is that usually a story like this that's so epic um is sort of painted in broad strokes but sydney pollock uh, right down to his choice of not filming it in 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 the scope ratio he, it's a very intimate story and a very subtle story, and it's 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 got this huge canvas, but it's painted with little tiny strokes, and mm. it's an interesting choice, but for me it doesn't it doesn't quite work. It needed something bigger and more sweeping, and I also think that um, I think casting Robert Redford was a mistake because it overemphasizes her relationship with him because yeah. you're expecting these huge fireworks between Redford and Streep, and for me. It never delivers. There's more sparks on the film between him and Barkley than there are between him and Meryl Streep. <laughs> and, and between I, Meryl Streep and Barkley. Yeah, exactly. And, um, and her story is fascinating, her progression and her arc. But her, I think her relationship with Klaus Maria Brandauer is actually more interesting than her relationship than with Robert Redford. But that one gets all of the attention because it's Robert Redford. I think they would have been better off casting somebody less familiar but who had more heat with her. She's a tricky actress. She can be cold sometimes, and it takes a certain kind of actor, I think, to, to, to create heat. And, and Robert Redford, for me, just didn't have it. I wonder if you dance with me. Put him down, man. Come on. Now break it up. Come on. I think you are about to apologize. Do stir things up, Ernest. When they say they like to read, how do they put that exactly? I mean, do they know they'd like Dickens? You don't think they should learn to read? I think you might have asked them. Did you ask to learn when you were a child? How can stories possibly harm them? They have their own stories. They're just not written down. And what stake do you have in keeping them ignorant? They're not ignorant. I just don't think they should be turned into little Englishmen. 
do like to change things, don't you? For the better, I hope. I want my Kikuyu to learn to read. Buy Kikuyu. Buy Limoges. Buy Farm. It's an awful lot to own, isn't it? I have paid a price for everything I own. And what is it exactly that's yours? We're not owners here, Karen. We're just passing through. Is life really so damn simple for you, Finch Hartman? Perhaps I ask less of it than you do. I don't believe that at all. That's a, that's a good point. I do think that, that it would be interesting to see what, what another actor would have done with the role. But I, I think that I, I love the thing that I love the fact that she was so open in the movie. Karen Blixen is so open about having multiple relationships with men. She had multiple lovers and didn't and thought that was just fine. Yeah. And her feelings about all of them were very complicated and nuanced. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I think that, you know, I was trying to think back and when I've ever seen Robert Redford have any real heat and he doesn't, he's gorgeous and everything, but he doesn't really have that kind of heat that an actor needs. He's not like Marlon Brando or Paul Newman. Um, as cute as he is, I think the best he he ever got in that regard was um, was um, the way we were, and I think that's because Barbara Streisand had so much to overcompensate. <laughs> I mean, right. I think that Meryl Streep plays it a little bit close to the yeah, vest. Yeah, it's hard to even think of a Robert Redford love scene. Maybe he doesn't, for some reason or other, he doesn't like to do them. But but if you don't do love scenes, it's hard to imagine you in bed with someone if you never get yeah. filmed when you're in bed with someone. And he's always so tightened up, you know. Yeah, that's true. Incredibly handsome and very charming, but not, he doesn't give off carnality the way not some at actors all. do. He likes to be that pretty face, you know, staring at you before the camera fades. You know, he doesn't, right. he doesn't have car that carnal thing. You're exactly First, I right. Think her he likes to play it safe. Yeah. yeah. Yes. But her interest in him in the movie, her, the character's interest in him, was not just uh, sexual in any way, but she liked him because of his sensitivity in his brains, too. Right, right. It's just hard with Robert Redford to look at anything but his looks. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> Absolutely. Carrying so the big ivory tusk around. And, and that's he, probably why they cast him in the film, to bring in that woman audience. Oh, yeah. You know who's kind of like that? You know, Meryl Streep is, is a beautiful woman, but I don't think she draws in a lot of men. And Out of Africa, to me, was more of a, it was a woman's picture, so they had to have a good-looking, handsome actor to draw the women in so they can bring their husbands with them and boyfriends to go see the film because Meryl Streep alone would not draw a lot of men to see her, like in the film, because she, I don't think she's, like, stunningly beautiful, but she, she's sort of, like, um, she's average to me. And plus yeah, they wanted, not... like, the most handsome man they could find, you know, the biggest star... Mm -hmm. I don't know. You know, he's great. You know when Robert Redford is at his best is when he's playing broken down heroes, like in Electric Horseman or in this new movie coming out called All Is Lost. That's when, to me, he's at his best. You he's know, good with light comedy, too, I think. Yeah, he's like George Clooney in that way. Clooney right. is at his best when he's playing more, you know, imperfect characters, like in really Burn After comparison. Reading. Yeah. And George Clooney's like Robert Redford in that he doesn't, he also doesn't do a lot of love scenes, you know, sex mm. scenes. He's boring. I, in comparison to Out of Africa, I keep thinking of uh, Red. It, that seems to be the touchstone that we keep coming back to whenever the, an epic movie comes out. And that's another one that, that managed to balance the historical epic. But it was also smoking hot in its own way. Just, just I, I, We talked about it, I think, quite at length in one of our previous podcasts. Mm. There was a lot of heat between, between all three characters. 
the chemistry really you could really feel the chemistry in in the eye contact and everything in reds that you didn't that you don't see in out of africa so much yeah well, partly because red, so yeah exactly it's it's warren Beatty's also, camera also on warren diane, Beatty keating. And diane keating were dating at the time too mm. right. so mm-hmm. that brought it out more and but his his obsessive was camera was just on her and it was his view of her so the camera itself is loving and lustful in that movie that's what's right. so you feel so much heat but but his contemporary um paul newman is like so sexy that like you think of cool hand luke or cat on a hot tin roof he just appears on screen and he's hot, you know, hot. <laughs> Robert Redford, as cute as he is, he's gorgeous, but it's, you know, and women swoon over him, but he just, to me, he's never really brought the sexual heat at all. He's not the captain of the polo team. There was more sexual heat in the Amish movie. <laughs> you know, there really was. There was a lot of, I was really surprised. I had not seen Witness. I have to confess that I had not seen Witness until this week. And so when I watched it, I was really surprised that it begins with a joke about horses' balls. And, <laughs> and then it progresses to be really steamy. You know, there's oh, a really yeah. some, some steamy relationships. And, 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 and Amish people, I just didn't realize they flirted so much. There were such flirts. <laughs> I'm sure that they, they weren't. And the Amish community was not really happy with their portrayal. <laughs> I love her character in that. I love that female character. Mm, fantastic, yeah. You know? And the kid is great. It's a, it's a great little movie. I'm so impressed with it. At first, I couldn't understand what it's doing in the best picture as a Best Picture nominee because it just seemed to me from the description of it, from the synopsis, I thought it was a cop thriller. But I see that it's so much more than that. And, yeah. of course, Peter Weir is going to bring more to it than... He wouldn't have even taken it on if it if he wasn't going to bring a lot to it, a lot of substance to it. Yeah, it still feels like an odd man out to me. As much as I love the movie, it just still doesn't seem like it has a little extra something that is that. But don't makes... you think that the little boy should have got nominated in the film? Fantastic. Yeah, I mean nowadays he might he might, but it seems like it's more accepted now. Especially I... considering their weird like herding cats supporting actor category. I, I tend to be against nominating little kids, but if since they they but anyway they should have given it to him because he was terrific. Yeah, he was so good. He his character reminded me of the, the little kid. And what's that film with with Bruce Willis? That little kid. Um, I um, see dead people. Yeah, the six. It's cents. almost like the Daily same Dolphins. type of character, almost. You know. Mm-hmm. And I just think that when that, that kid should have got nominated, Lucas Haas. I think he he yeah. definitely he deserved one. And he went on to have a, a decent career too. It wasn't like there was a it was a a, a one shot deal either with him. He, he was more than a one hit wonder. He went on to have a pretty decent career, Lucas Haas. Yeah, and he's still acting. I think. Yeah. I think to so. this very day, he, I mean, he looks weird looking now. He's kind of quirky <laughs> looking, but he yeah. does good work. You know. Uh huh. He was in uh, Ryan Johnson's Brick. He had a, a fairly mm. memorable against against type casting in that yeah. one. I like how he just does that. Like he, he likes to be a character actor, and he kind of just turns up wherever, and he doesn't have any ego. That's what I like about him. Um, mm-hmm. And he pals around with Leo. You know, what are you going to do? Two, <laughs> right. Two potheads. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I loved Witness. It was definitely a big, you know, romantic movie from my young adulthood, and I was just one of the women that swooned over it with the love scene. I don't remember if I read in that Inside Oscar book if it was one of the ones where they wanted to keep the love scene out and that mm. they wanted to have the whole movie with just it being repressed Amish, but that the studio told them they had to have a love scene. And they don't really even have a love scene, but they have Peter Weir is one of the few directors who can direct complete eroticism with no sex at all or nudity. And he does mm-hmm. that in two specific movies scenes, which is this one and Witness, where they're 
she puts her little bonnet down on the counter. You know, she's like <laughs> sa- saying, I'm not an Amish woman for right now. And then she mm-hmm. just runs out there and kisses him. And that's that. She takes him. And the same thing happens with Sigourney Weaver and Mel Gibson in the movie I keep going on and on about, which is The Year of Living Dangerously, where mm-hmm. it's raining and she's just found out that there that, that there's going to be a revolution. And she walks into his office and he just looks at her and she just grabs him and they start kissing. I mean, those are two of the hottest scenes in movies, period. And they have mm-hmm. no nudity. Um, it should... I'm sorry, I don't want to interrupt no, you. No, go Finish ahead. your point. I have one thing to add to that. No, I'm done. Go okay. ahead. Uh, it should be pointed out that he uses nudity really well, too, because there's a nude scene in Witness, and he uses it effectively and not exploitatively. Um, her her nudity is sort of for a reason. She's sort of... And it and it's relatively subtle and not overt, but it it's really it's really sexy the way that it's handled. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's not... It's not cheesy the way it so often is. Yeah, she's such a great character because she is attracted to him. I mean, who wouldn't be? But she's so attracted and, and she's bathing herself. And he walks by the mm. hallway and he, he, she sees him out there and she just turns around and, you know, lets him look at her. Right. And he turns away because he, he figures he's, you know, he can't take advantage of her, which is why she has to throw herself at him later. It's like, right. honey. That's what I found so interesting about it. I really expected a movie about the Amish was going to be just as buttoned up as, as their as their clothing. But, you know, they're also really very much a, uh, a culture and a people who are really, I think, very earthy. You know, they're really in touch with with, uh, mm-hmm. with natural with a natural way of life and a natural, um, natural law of nature, you know, and of course, if you're, they, they have, you know, big families and stuff like that, you know, they have, they, they have great sex, not great, I don't know if they have great sex, but they, they have a lot of sex. Yeah, they must have a lot of sex. (laughs) This gun of the hand. (laughs) You know, I was wondering what ever happened with her career. It's like after she did The Accused, her career just kind of, well, she Top Gun, remember, she was big in Top Top Gun. Gun, but that was the early 80s, then she did this, there was the accused, and now her, she's that like was nowhere that. all of a sudden. Her yeah. career just went nowhere. That's a sad thing about a lot of Hollywood actresses is once they're not pretty anymore, they stop getting work. And, and the only thing that happened to her is she got old and she stopped being the young Ingrid Bergman. She didn't really age well, I don't think. And that could not, that may be not the reason why she doesn't work, but you never see her anymore. Um, it should also be noted, we can't go without saying, that the Witness was the first time people got to look at Viggo Mortensen, and, and he really stands out. He has no lines in the movie, but you can see him in the background of almost every scene as one of the Amish guys, and, and he was definitely noticed at the time with his big blue eyes and his high cheekbones, and it wasn't too long after that that he actually started to get parts, but that was really Vigo's first big movie. Did you guys know that? No, I didn't know that at all. I didn't notice in this last time I watched it. Oh, man. For, for me, when I watch it, it's the only thing I can see is Vigo in every scene. <laughs> but, yeah, that's him. That's him. Um, he's, he's the Amish guy with the brown hair and the, and the wide face and the high cheekbones. If you, you should go back through it, um, Ryan. You should fast forward through it again and, and look because you'll, you'll see Vigo in there and you'll just be like, oh, my God, that's Vigo. Is that right? I Bef- love that when that happens. You know, that's happened to me a couple of times in recent movies. You know who was in um, uh, Purple Rose of Cairo that I didn't realize it is, is – um, um, Weist, Diane Weist is in Purple as a Cairo, just like a walk-on as a prostitute. Yeah, right. That's right. And then, does. and then, uh, back in uh, my favorite year, there's a there's a scene where where um, Peter O'Toole dances with someone in a, in a club, and she doesn't even have any dialogue. But it's um, Gloria Stewart from Titanic. 
Oh, how funny! Yeah, and I, I, of course, when you see that, when you, when I, when if you see that years ago before Titanic, you wouldn't even recognize her because you wouldn't, you wouldn't be familiar with her. But right. when you see it after you've seen Titanic, it, it rings such a, I, a strange bell. I love that, see, like Ted Knight in Psycho, where he opens the door and there's Ted Knight. <laughs> 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 I dropped out of the call there for a minute. I lost my connection, so I didn't really under, I didn't hear what you were saying about what I should fast forward to to see. Oh, so just to see, really, v- just to see Vigo, just to go back okay, and see. Right. Him in okay. that. I mean, once you see him in that, you won't be able to do anything but look at him. <laughs> He's a perf- perfect facial structure, right, for an Amish guy. Yeah, but I remember when I first saw the movie, I, I just kept looking at this guy and going, he's not a very good extra because, you know, he's making me look at him all the time. Because <laughs> right. extras are just supposed to blend in. But he actually brings, just like he does now, he's such a, he's such a hardworking actor. He actually uh-huh. brings a character to that little extra part that he has. And he really does, ba- you know, he does, mm-hmm. he does, um, what's the word? He does, um, you know, bounce. He's, he's, he pops. He pops. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> he pops. But, um, it looks like, we like actors who pop. Oh, so Kelly McGillis, I'm looking at her thing and she was in the innkeepers. She was in the L word. I think she's actually gay. And well, real you know life. what you're saying. It's not. It's not only that they. I mean, of course, actresses like like Kelly McGinnis, they stay pretty all of their lives. But what they don't stay is twenty. Is in their twenties. Right. Once they once they get into their their mid thirties, then Hollywood is done with them. It's just such a, a shame. It's it's uh it's bizarre, really. Yeah. I really love Witness. I think it's a really good, very solid thriller. That was a big one at our video store. We used to play that one a lot. Right, Michael? Yeah. <laughs> we loved Witness. <laughs> no, I, I like the movie. I can't remember it as much because I think I've seen it just a few times. I haven't seen it like over and over and over again. I have to see it again now. You know, just to see Vigo. <laughs> to see him in the movie. I'm so surprised. Yeah, you really should. You'll die laughing. You no, know, for me, though, um, 1985 was the year of, you guys mentioned, um, the, one, the movie with John Houston. Um, Pritzy's Honor. Pritzy's Honor. Pritzy's yeah. Honor. For me, the only the disappointment with the nominations was that Kathleen Turner was not nominated. Yeah, I'm a huge fan of her. I thought she was terrific in that role, and once again, she got snubbed. And I, I just think it's she's to me she's one of those actresses that has been denied too many times when yeah. it comes with the Oscars. She only been nominated once, and that was for um, for Peggy Sue Got Married. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like the next year. But I think she's one of the great actresses of her time, and she's been denied so many times with an Oscar nomination. Yeah, I think it's a really good point. Um, she's Another so actress that was kicked to the curb as, yeah. as soon as she got a little bit older. I mean, she, right. she was great in Body Heat. She was great in Peggy Sue Got Married. She was great in Romancing the Stone. Romancing it was a light Ooh, she comedy, but she was terrific in it. She was, yeah. I love her in um, Body Heat, though. Um, once they get a whiff of it, they trail you like a hound. <laughs> that's, one, that's one of my great all-time favorite films. I know it is. Me She's and Michael do this stuff. She's of the 80s, and it's, it's sad how she, how she was just giving these great performances, but when it came for Oscar time, they just snubbed her. I don't know what you mean. It's just a dress and a skirt. <laughs> I mean, it's just a blouse. <laughs> it's just a blouse and a skirt. <laughs> <laughs> what does um, what does she say? Body Heat, I mean, is is right up there with Double Indemnity to me is one of the greatest film noir. It's sex, actually better sex, than do- the hottest of all of all time. It is. It's better than Double Indemnity is great, but I think Body yeah. Heat's better. 
but again, that's the kind of movie that the Academy overlooks because of its genre. They don't even consider it sometimes because they just think it's the wrong type of movie. It's not prestige. It's not prestige enough. Somehow. Okay. Yeah. Indeed. Indeed. Um, it was a really shitty year, all in all. I think that um, the fact that uh, Murphy's Romance. <laughs> I know, really. Well, I just think, like I said, I just think it was a really weak year for actors and supporting actors. There were no really great roles for men, and I think the the, male, the men in the academy just didn't know what to do. The voters just didn't know what to do. And the even though we've talked about four or five really fantastic films, um, that's not that's 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 not a very top heavy. There's no there's the bench isn't very deep in a year like that. No, but and, interestingly, this the. Um well, thank God Ron got a cinematography nomination. Could we just say mm. that much? Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. yikes. But one interesting movie that came out that year was Brazil. And it was it was considered and carried on as like one of the great movies that was almost completely overlooked. Mm-hmm. Um, but it only got a it looks like it only got a um, a screenplay. Original Maybe script. maybe maybe art direction. Too. Art direction, I think, possibly. I would not okay. be surprised if it got an art direction. I'm not looking at it, but it just seems like yeah, it got that, art that, direction that's that's the thing that really writing. stood out for me because of the of Terry Gilliam's movies always have that really distinctive look to them. I really know? like um, Witness, but I I'm surprised that it beat out um, Purple Rose of Cairo, the official story in Brazil. Um, and even Back to the Future, I hate to say it, for screenplay. Those are all better screenplays than Witness. Well, Brazil was for the great movie, but also it was um, a British film. And I think prior to 85, remember when Chariots of Fire won? Mm-hmm. I think Hollywood had sort of like this love-hate relationship with British films. Uh, that ha- we talked about that. It happened two years in a row. It happened with Chariots of Fire and the following year with Gandhi. And right. after that, I think that Hollywood thought, wait a minute, what are we doing? Don't we make great movies here in Hollywood, too? Let's stop giving all of our awards to, to the U.K. Right. Well, so even, this- even then, it skipped a year, but then a passage to India won. Although, interestingly, I mean, sometimes it's, hard to ver- it's easy to forget that Terry, Terry Gilliam is American. Right. You know, oh, he is American. Yeah, he's yeah, American, he's, but, he's but, but American Monty Python guy. But but his movies do have a really British feel to them. I that, always right. think maybe him. that was it. it, it was he that lives there. Give another there. British film Oscars. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, I always think of him as British too. I yeah, always forget. I he, they, where was he born? Um, I don't know. I'm not sure. Huh. I'll find out real quick. Yeah. It was it's Monty Python. He's American. Wow. He joined Monty Python. He moved to England, I think, and he stayed there ever since. Yeah, that's right. Like Kubrick. Go ahead. Like Kubrick did. Kubrick yep. did the same thing. Yeah, exactly. So that you almost think of Kubrick as being a, a British too, because he lived there all his life. They're expats. They sort of they leave America so they can get a different, a better perspective on America. I think once they're once you're outside the, the boundaries of America, you can really look back at us and see how what a, how fucked up we are. Sorry. Yeah, that's why he was snubbed for so many years. I mean, he was snubbed completely throughout his, throughout his entire career. Kubrick. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I know. Because he was a brilliant director, but he was so anti-American that why give it to him when they can give it to someone else? It's always a stain on the Oscars when they ignore the best in film. It's just a stain on their reputation. They should be ashamed of themselves, really. That they oh, they have a there's a list of the great actors, actresses, and directors who have never won Oscars, and it's really a shame when you think of the ones, um, actors and actresses and directors who did win Oscars but who shouldn't have won. Oh my it's God! Sad. Almost all of them. I know. It's really sad. Almost all of them. 
<laughs> At least the past few. <laughs> There's I a few. Hitchcock is the classic example of a director uh, who was totally taken for granted, just like Spielberg, I think. He never um, won a single... I mean, Orson Welles and Alfred Hitchcock are arguably made the two best films in history. I mean, I, I put the Godfathers up there, too, um, mm-hmm. unequivocally, and they did win. Um, and Francis for Coppola won director for the second one, not for the first, but but that... Um, Orson Welles only won screenplay for Citizen Kane, and, and Alfred Hitchcock only won picture for Rebecca. Man, that's that's embarrassing for them well, that, that he with, never won. With Alfred Hitchcock, he while well, he was making, I think it was Rebecca, or he had a run-in with um, one of the big producers. That, I don't know if it was Louis B. Mayer, Selznick, Selznick. He had a big run about the making of the film, and I think um, Rebecca was his first and only film made with them or something like that and then after that he said he would never work with Selznick again or something oh. like that and then ever since then I think Selznick who was the big honcho in Hollywood at that period just had it out for Alfred Hitchcock no matter how great he got he'll never win an Oscar mm. and that's how Hollywood back in those days was really dirty if you cheated the moguls that was Louis B. Mayer, David Selznick all those guys, Carl, Carl Lamar, whatever if you did, did did wrong with them, they made sure that you would suffer. Oh, and I wow. think that run-in that Alfred Hitchcock had with David O. Selznick, it haunted him for the rest of his career when it came to Oscars and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Mm, that's terrible. Well, they did nominate him. They, he just never won for director. Yeah, he just never won. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, those moguls say he better not win. And they right. go with the moguls. I think it's embarrassing to the Academy, though. I think it really kind of defeats the whole purpose of saying that you're giving out the best of anything. In my and it's opinion. almost even more embarrassing. It makes them, in a way, look like almost like they realize their mistake when they, at the end of a, of a director's career that they haven't been able to find in their heart to reward. They give them the honorary Oscar a couple months before they die. Right. You know, it's really that's a really sad and pitiful thing. I think that they that they try to rescue and save face by saying, "Oh, but we did give him an Oscar." Yeah, yeah, but not when he was making movies. And people always yeah. say to me, they always go, "You know, the Oscars don't vote by committee. There's not like ten people sitting in a room and deciding what's just fair. They just sit down and they vote with their hearts." You know, and that might be true, but why then give them so much credit? And why do we, you know? I guess it's a dumb question. <laughs> they vote with their individual hearts, but they all have the same type of heart. <laughs> I will say that a lot of them lack thereof. Or lack of heart. I, I like honorary Oscars. Um, so it, it's like a love-hate relationship. You know, sometimes I feel it's just a slap in the face to give someone an honorary Oscar when they should have won Oscars years prior and stuff like that. I mean, I just think, like, you thought I was great back then. What happened? And now all of a sudden you feel sorry for me because I'm 90 years old now and I'm just about to drop dead, so now you're going to give me an Oscar. I remember when Peter O'Toole got his honorary Oscar, his friends told him, do not accept that award. They did not want him to go to the Oscars. They did not want him to accept the award. They felt that it was a, a complete embarrassment that here you have one of the greatest film actors of all time with eight Oscar nominations, and now they're going to reward him with an honorary Oscar. It was like to, to a lot of people, it was an embarrassment for Peter O'Toole to get that honorary Oscar. This, he he should have won so an Oscar. too, especially when he came, when Peter O'Toole then says, you know, I'm not done yet. You yeah, know, exactly. Even though I've won this honorary Oscar, don't give up on me. I might come out with a, with the best actor performance next year, so don't forget about me. But it is, I do think it's too little too late. And But I, I do wish 
that if they're going to hand out the honorary Oscars, I, I like to see them, the recipients on TV. I think it's a, a shame that they have stopped broad, uh, uh, featuring them, the honorary Oscars, in, in, during the broadcast. Is the, that the because of the Oscar length? Is this too long? Yeah. So they, but can't you just cut some of the other crap? You know, I mean, there's so much other crap during the Oscar broadcast that I would rather not see in, 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 instead of the legends except their I don't, gospel report. I don't know why they think the dance numbers and stuff like that are, are what people want. I mean, am I the only one? Go to their living rooms and go into the kitchen and grab a soda That's or something. Exactly during the dance. Right. Who cares about the dance numbers? You, nobody you know? ever watches and, those. And imagine also the people in the audience. Do they really enjoy that shit? I can't no. imagine that they do. I would rather see a great actor being honored than hear about it when they come up and say, these are the actors who are not, who got an honorary Oscar. I mean, when I heard Oprah Winfrey got an honorary Oscar, my, my tongue dropped to the floor. I, I just like, <laughs> how much did it cost her to buy that? You know, oh, I, no. couldn't, I couldn't believe that they gave her an honorary Oscar. James Earl Jones, well-deserved, well-deserved without a doubt. But I guess you can buy an Oscar. That's what I thought. <laughs> Oprah well, she does the, you know, she's contributed so much and she produces a lot of movies and she's always got the ABC after Oscar. Um, well, she's gunning for an Oscar now with the Butler. She wants to win yeah. an Academy Award so bad. Now she got well, I hope Butler. she wins. I mean, what, what do we want to give it to some other shitty actor for? Let Oprah have it if she wants it. <laughs> if the lady, if they're going to give... Jennifer Lawrence needs another Oscar. Yeah. <laughs> oh, please, fire. make it yeah, stop. Oh, God. Make it stop. <laughs> that happened. We're laughing now, but just wait. Yeah, I, I was going to say, I haven't enjoyed the Oscars in 15 sure years. For Moonstruck. Hey, things happen, you know. I've hated the I mean, I've had a horrible, stressful, like, you know, acid reflux night for 15 years every time the Oscars are on. I don't enjoy them anymore now that I do this site. Like, they're just not fun for me. They're nerve-wracking, you know. It's nerve-wracking, and there's so many... Uh, uh, it's, a, it's like death from a thousand stab wounds, right? <laughs> You know, all throughout the evening, every 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 envelope that's opened it is like is like a cut to your. Except to for your when point. it turns out well, yeah, which is right. rare. It's been a while since that happened. <laughs> it's been three or four years since. I really happened. liked Ang Lee winning last year. That was a high point, mm -hmm. you know. But for the most part, ugh, ugh. You know what I have to Craig knows because he was here. I had to like go into the bathroom every time they announced a winner. It's awful. I wish I didn't feel that way. Like it should. We should not care this much, really. It's just that you write about it for a whole year. You talk about it for a whole year, and all of a sudden, you know. Um, I'm seeing. Now, the, what, what it was like to watch the Oscars before there was Twitter and before there was a constant year-long conversation when you could just sit down in 1985 and watch the Oscars and it was just a one-night event and then the, the next day that you would at the office or with your friends you would talk about it but you didn't have so much invested in it as we do. You know? It was just it a fun thing then because they had mm -hmm. office pools and then critics and entertainment reporters would write their stories overnight then they would run in the morning paper you know kind of rehashing what happened like a sport sporting event but now it's like you get instant critique and commentary as the show progresses you know mm -hmm. but um yeah it's a, it's a lot of pressure craig everything was back, better before twitter back to I know uh, out of africa craig is that is the only reservation you have about it or the biggest reservation you have is robert redford i know that you had said that you you did like it but you did have some yeah, that was the main thing, and just just the uh, the small strokes on a big canvas didn't quite work for me, even though I thought it was an interesting idea. Um, right. But it it, um, it uh, Streep was fantastic. It looked beautiful, and John Barry's score is an all time classic. Um, 
there's, the a, cinematography, there's a lot to like about it. The cinematography, to me, the, the scope of it, the epic scope of it is just the landscape. The, right. Africa does that for me, and just, just to stand back on the hillside and look out across the, the plains, you know. Um, but I do think that it is, it's almost like a, it's like the sort of David Lean film that David Lean made with Passage to India. It's a smaller scale epic. It's a more intimate epic. You know, it's, it, to me, it's like whenever you see Out of Africa, it just takes you back to a time when they used to make these small-scale romantic films. But they, it's the setting. Like in, this one was in Africa, and you see it, and it's like a picture book. It's, it, it's one of the most beautiful films made in, in many years. And so whenever, whenever I see it, it just takes me back to that, um, those old films from the 50s, like Magambo... Um, Mm-hmm. The one with Clark Gable, no, the one with um, King Solomon's Mines, you know, oh, yeah. mm-hmm. about Africa. And then it's just a beautiful landscape film, and it's just plush, and it, it just takes you away, and the whole romance involved. And it's just today when you watch it, it just reminds you of those old films that they used to make. It's hard to make a movie that as lavish as Out of Africa today that doesn't cost $120 million. I mean, it's done, I don't see how you would do it. I, mean, I don't think anybody, yeah. would, any studio would want to take the gamble now. Yeah. Because they couldn't get the audience to go and see it. You know, though, it's the film that would have to be played, you know, right up to the Oscars, like late December. Yeah. You know, it couldn't come out now, you know, because it would be lost in the shuffle. That film like that today, if it were made today, would have to come out around Christmas time. Right. You know, right. it couldn't be, it couldn't come out now, you know. But that is definitely, in my book, one of the most beautiful films made. Like, and you mentioned A Passage to India, the same thing. It's just an mm-hmm. epic, beautiful storybook. I feel. I liked it better the second time through. I watched about the first hour of it, right up to the part where she gets syphilis, and I, it just was not clicking with me at all. And then I went, I went back and started it over after Ryan had mentioned how much he loved it. I wanted to give it a second shot, and a lot more of the subtlety of her character started to come out. That I, I was paying more attention to it, and it, it, um, it's a remarkable character. I think it's one of those movies that really does improve with multiple viewings. It doesn't seem like there's a there's a, a lot of maybe a lot of depth that you can sort of absorb it all in one viewing, but you you can see so much more going on if you watch it two or three times. And for me personally, I don't know it can it can be have this effect on everyone, but after living outside the United States for seven years, I really it really strikes as such a chord with me to transplant yourself to another country and and land in a in an environment where you're absolutely everything is foreign and you have no no concept about the culture whatsoever and to immerse yourself in that I, it really affects me so much more deeply now after living outside of America than it did when I first saw it interesting yeah. Yeah. it is interesting <clears throat> I should give it another chance I've never been able to I mean I, I watched it in the theater its first time but then every time since then I've I have to admit that as much as I love Meryl Streep and all I've been doing is singing her praises for all of these podcasts because you know I think she's brilliant mm. and but Something about her performance to me felt when I watched it before. Maybe if I watch it again, I'll, I'll change my mind now that I, I see Brian has sort of illuminated the movie for me in a, in a different way. But it always felt sort of like it was a hindrance, like it was penning her in too much. The, and she wasn't able to really um, emote so much because she was so focused on you know, getting it exactly right. And it was a, br- mm. it's a brilliant, technically mm. brilliant performance, but... I'm not saying it's just the accent and the wig or whatever. I'm just saying yeah, that there's... Just the diction, though. You're right. I mean, I don't see how an actor can sustain the, that diction and that accent 
without missing a, a note over a span of nearly three hours. Every right. single word out of her mouth, you never hear a slip up. There's never any of her natural voice that comes through. It's remarkable, yeah. really. Well, maybe she didn't have a chance to win because, and this is from my own point of view, but maybe the landscape itself overpowered the star power itself. It could be, yeah. You know, and also, that, she had she had just won previously two Oscars in the in the in the previous three or four years, and so it would be a, a um, pretty much of a stretch for her to win a third one so soon. I think. Right. And it was another situation of oh no, here's Meryl Streep with another accent again. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Yeah. And but but I think for me the one of the problems that I had with the movie was that it was hard for me to connect with her, and I mm. wonder if that's one of the reasons is that it was uh, you know she played in Plenty, in that movie mm. Plenty it was a similar mm-hmm. thing to me like I think she's playing the character as kind of cold, mm-hmm. deliberately you know but I think that makes it harder to find a way into the movie. Yeah, you know? I think you're, you, that's a good point. I can see that. The yeah. the, um, the treatment of romance in the film seemed to come off more intellectually than emotionally to me. The mm-hmm. emotional parts all, for me, in the end, had to do with her losing her plantation and leaving and leaving behind the, um, the people the that French. she... Yeah, yeah the mm-hmm. native yeah. people, more mm-hmm. so than, than the, the romantic ins and outs, no pun intended, between her and Redford <laughs> or between her and Klaus Maria Brandauer. Um, it, it was... All of all of the interesting things happened in those relationships in words to me, on rather than in actions, and just things that they would talk about were interesting to think about. And it was a very adult treatment of how human beings behave and how they treat each other. Um, but it, I never felt it in the same way. We should mention that aside from the color purple. The black cast in Out of Africa are really essential to the success of the film. The actors and the quality of the acting from the black actors in, in Out of Africa was amazing, and, and really, like you said, really more emotionally moving to me than any of her rela- any of her romantic relationships. Her mm-hmm. friend, her friendship relationships were, were more important to me. Right, right, yeah. Did they build up the romance for the movie more than what was was present in the stories in the book? Do you do you know, Ryan? I don't know because I have, although I've read a lot of Isak Gunnison's um, um, short stories, I have not read Out of Africa. I have not okay. read that, so I don't know. That was my understanding of it, that it, it, it took the stories that were in Out of Africa and sort mm-hmm. of sort of built up the romance part of it, whereas maybe, mm-hmm. and obviously they did that probably for box office reasons like we talked about, but, but I think mm-hmm. the stronger story lay elsewhere and that just distracted from it. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a good choice to win um, Best Picture, but I think that it won over... Out of Africa and Fritzi's Honor makes it look like a weak winner in retrospect. Um, mm. Only because, you know, he didn't win the DGA. It wasn't kind of gaining momentum. It was sort of a surprise victory at the end. And, and I think it probably felt a little bit like a default choice to people. Mm-hmm. Even though it did capture the public consciousness the same way Chariots of Fire did. You know, it yeah. was the same mm-hmm. kind of thing. Like, the public really loved it. And, um, there was a Saturday Night Live sketch that aired the episode before the, I don't think it was the night before, but it was, it aired before the Oscars aired. And uh, it was the uh, Weekend Update and Joan Cusack, who was a cast member at the time, um, had a bit um, where she was acknowledging Out of Africa as being the favorite, but she was disappointed because it just wasn't that funny. <laughs> 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 but it, it was it was interesting to me that at that point, just a few days before the show, it was being talked about as the as the favorite. I, I oh, that is interesting. Yeah, so people were already ready to say, you know, even though Spielberg won the DGA, that it was still Out of Africa's to lose. 
Right. Well, it's the kind of film that wins Oscars. It was an epic, you know. It was it was a love story, you know. Hollywood played it played it safe compared to the kind of films that Color used Purple. to win Oscars. Yeah, mm-hmm. it, true. It, it's the film that used to win Oscars, but it won up. It it was one of the last of its kind to win an Oscar. But The Color Purple was a little bit more dark. It was definitely a dark film, you know. And um, Hollywood just wasn't ready yet to give an all black film a Best Picture Oscar. Hollywood's may not ever be ready i don't know they are they are both movies out of africa and the color purple both both touched all the bases and being nominated across all the categories but i think that out of africa did it by being more traditional much more traditional and, and more old school type of movies that the older uh, voters in the academy probably would look back and wishes that they would always make more movies like that right color purple was 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 almost avant-garde you know, to look at the look of it and the style of it, it was not traditional in, in any sense of the word. And those Academy members were voting way back in the 40s and 50s and stuff. Exactly. And voting in the 80s, you know, so they're mm-hmm. not used to, um, out of Africa took them by surprise. You know, I mean, not out of Africa, Color Purple took them by surprise. I think you so. Know? And plus, yeah. anything that has any sort of um, whiff of controversy around it, people, I think voters get scared of it because they, they think, mm, maybe I really shouldn't vote for that because how's that going to look to the American public if we, if we award this movie that's so controversial, um, Best Picture, what, are, what is that going to say about the Academy that makes us controversial? And they and don't want to do that. That happened back in 73 with The Exorcist. That, was the, uh, that film should have won Best Picture, but there was so much controversy behind it and people were threatening to quit the Academy if that film had won Best Picture. Right, that's you know? right. Mm. Wow, that I didn't know that. Yeah, and it, yeah, it should have won. That was the best film in 1973, but, it, it, but The Sting. So it, it, in, in some way, you can say The Sting was 1973's Out of Africa. Yeah, mm-hmm. and the the controversy hurt. We know how much it hurt um, Zero Dark Thirty last year. As soon as the people started talking about it too much on the news, then it lost the the, the bloom was off of it. I mean, nobody wanted to, to to go near it. I've still never seen it happen that fast as it happened with Zero Dark Thirty. Yeah. That was fast. Yeah, because that was, was that movie became toxic so quickly. Even know, though it was so a box quickly. office success and a lot of people loved it, it was almost like if you loved it, you had to be somebody who. Pro-torture. Pro-torture, yeah. Mm. And then you had all those people who said that from the government, this didn't really happen the way the film is. That that came into play. People and like it, John McCain, who are pretty big voices, who although John McCain lost the election, I'm sure that there are a lot of people, members of the Academy who voted for him, and so who probably think he's the bee's knees, you know? And so mm-hmm. if John McCain doesn't like the movie, then maybe we shouldn't like it either. And it's really sad that a, a movie that as good as, as that movie, movie was had to suffer because of that it's like any movie that has to suffer because of controversy controversy true or not it should go on the merit of the quality of the film itself mm-hmm. instead of oh well this happened or it didn't happen who cares if it's a great movie and it deserves the recognition it should get it but well, it I guess had it's people not like, like that. Well, you know? Ed Asner and, and Martin Sheen were, were uh, writing letters to Academy members to boycott. Telling them not, I know, not even to watch, telling them not to so, watch it, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. that's, and then by the time they changed their minds, which one mm. of them did. Well, I thought censorship them. was, that's illegal in this country. Well, <laughs> well, you're, you're always saying too, Sasha, that when a movie that, that has any controversy runs into such trouble, it makes people wary of making any movies that are controversial. And so we end up with a lot of bland 
pablum oh, movies yeah. and theaters because no one wants to take a chance on doing anything that's going to be risky. And it's such a strange, sad thing to have happen. It's worth noting, though, that in 1985, Desert Hearts is a pretty graphic lesbian movie. You know, Thanks for mentioning it again, because I actually have never even heard of that movie, much less never most seen people it. Haven't. So I have to check it out like immediately as soon as we turn off. It was so quiet, it didn't even... About the um, drop, about using um, the atomic testing... Like in the desert? I think the so. Desert. I think so. Something like that. But no, it's 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 lesbian. Um, it it um, as I you know as I <laughs> as I navigated my early twenties trying to discover what my desires were, <laughs> I sought out Desert Hearts. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, a bunch of unknowns. But the funny thing about it is that it didn't cause any controversy. Helen Shaver. It didn't cause mm -hmm. any controversy. She's cute too, Helen Shaver. Yeah. The only thing I only know it from fast forwarding to the sex scenes. I have no idea what the movie is about. Are you the sex scenes sure and that's it. Craig, you're so funny. Craig's like a he has like a, a like a metal sure detector for lesbian scenes. The, um, the atomic testing back in the 1950s. I'm pretty sure. No, that's, that's Desert Bloom. Bloom. That's Desert Bloom. Desert Hearts. I'll read you the synopsis. It is oh, 1950s Nevada, and Professor Vivian Bell arrives to get a divorce. She's unsatisfied with her marriage and feels out of place at the ranch she stays on. She finds herself increasingly drawn to Kay Rivers, an open and self-assured lesbian, and the ranch owner's daughter. The emotions released by their developing intimacy and Vivian's um, insecurities about her feelings towards Kay are played out against a backdrop of rocky landscapes. Country. Basically, it's Brokeback Mountain for women. <laughs> great, great. Sounds Doesn't it sound fantastic. hot? It's actually really hot, dude. It's directed hot. by a woman. And it's directed by a woman. Even if they made that movie today, it wouldn't be that big a deal. Uh, well, it wasn't gratuitous, and that's why I think it didn't cause any controversy. It was like Brokeback Mountain. It was played as just a straight... It didn't have, like, you know... It wasn't meant to titillate. And the... the um, especially got, male audiences are going to accept lesbian sex on screen much easier than they'll accept uh, gay male Man, sex on yeah, screen. Yeah, exactly. You know? Was Desert um, Hearts directed by a woman or a man, Sasha? Woman. It's a woman, but it, woman. It, it didn't make... It was a really kind of sleeper-hidden movie. Most people didn't... It was a word-of-mouth movie. It didn't mm -hmm. make any money, I remember. It didn't get any... You know, it, it certainly didn't cause any sort of a splash. The way. A relatively independent film. I mean, it was distributed by the Samuel Goldwyn Company, which isn't wasn't one of the huge players. And it's one of the few movies about about lesbian sex that is in in like the straight Hollywood mainstream. Not lesbian sex, but lesbian mm -hmm. love. Right. You know, it's pretty well respected. I'm seeing it's got like a four and a half stars on Amazon. It's it's got. I'm I'm shocked. I haven't heard of it. Really glad you brought this up. Well, it's a good movie. On top of that, but it's also mm -hmm. rare, incredibly rare, unheard mm -hmm. of actually to have a movie that that was made like that. I mean, in any time, mm -hmm. let alone 1985. You know. But it was a great year for for queer cinema. If you want to look at it like that, because Desert Hearts, and then you had Kiss of the Spider Woman. Mm -hmm. You know, there was some moving and shaking going on. I'm pretty there's sure some that lesbian overtones to Desperately Seeking Susan too, or am I just imagining that wrong? Mm, not really. Yeah. Wishful not. thinking in my yeah, mind. I never <laughs> got into that movie, Desperately Seeking Susan. They're the I only two that should have gotten together was Rosanna Arquette and Madonna. That would have been really hot. <laughs> but it, they got stuck with, like, Aiden Quinn and another guy. <laughs> I mean, isn't that, like, that is, that is what's her name's? only best movie ever of her whole career. Madonna? Madonna, yeah. She didn't do anything greater than that film, I think. 
Yeah, I would I would have to agree with that. Well, I tell you, Jenna Arquette. I mean, her career is like nobody was to her too. Boy, she was a serious hottie when she was young, though. She was hardcore hottie, and that she's another one where just the aging kind of, um, you know, altered her career. She was no longer that pretty young thing, and it was it was hard but to. She cast didn't her. age very well, anyway. Well, that's what I mean. Yeah, and and so, but she, you know, she's still working, and um, <clears throat> she made a movie about women in film called Searching for Deborah Winger, which is really good. And so yeah, you know. she reminds me of the Tilly sisters. They yeah. kind of careers kind of had the same path. Well, Jennifer Tilly had a little bit better of a chance. Jennifer Tilly was like Patricia Arquette. Like she had, she found more longevity. Cause she got naked. And she was <laughs> right. the sexy one. You know, yeah, she like, was a little girl. The Meg Tilly. Patricia Arquette aged just fine. You know, she didn't have the same problem as Rosanna. Rosanna always came across as being a little bit kooky too. Yeah, she was kooky. She was definitely kooky, but she was she was hot stuff back in the eighties. She was in um, After Hours, and that we were just talking about, which was completely ignored by everybody, and not I think has been sort of rediscovered among Scorsese fans. Right. But at the time, didn't really do that well. But she was great in it. She's great in that. Yeah. That and was just, one of your um, Sasha. You loved that movie, didn't you? Yeah. After Hours. I did. Yeah, I you really saw that at the video store a lot. After hours, I know. <laughs> budding, budding Scorsese fan. Yep, oh, yeah, Sasha some... is the ultimate <laughs> Scorsese fan. It's true. <laughs> All right, you guys, it's time for the Bachelorette. You're missing oh, you it. Go. I missing know you've already missed in the minutes. I know. It's All the right. last night. This is it. It all comes down to now. <laughs> that means I have to stay off of Twitter because I don't want to hear any spoilers. I'll have to stay off the internet too until I watch it. It's probably already on Twitter right now. As we well, glad you joined us, Michael. Uh, I want to thank you guys for letting me join again. Um, oh, I begged you. Sasha to let me come on again, but she said, oh, we're in the 80s now. They're kind of boring. <laughs> <laughs> Such a liar. You didn't want to come on. <laughs> I hope you had fun. No, I did. I really had a lot of fun. It was really great talking with you guys again about the movies in 1985 and how boring it was. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everybody. Have a good night. Okay, you guys have a good night. Okay, okay good night. You've been listening to episode 38 of Oscar Podcast with special guest Michael Gray and Craig Kennedy from livinginsinema.com, Ryan Adams and Sasha Stone from awardsdaily.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Oscar Podcast 